Susanna Clark wrote a wonderful fairy tale called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And in this fairy tale, she tells the story about the rediscovery of magic in the 19th century in England. In the beginning of the tale, all the magic had vanished from England. It remained part of the folklore of England, such as King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, but no one had actually practiced magic in years. But nonetheless, England was filled with magicians. Uh, they did so in spite of the fact that they didn't really perform any magic. They hadn't even seen a leaf on a tree tremble in a while from the use of magic. But there were tons of uh, magicians all over the place. They spent their days in lengthy arguments about theoretical magic, debating the use of casting one spell or the other. They loved to nitpick the history of magic in England. And then they would get together once a month and they would share these long, dull papers about magic. But the idea of actually performing magic was foreign. And then one day Mr. Norrell showed up. He went to the Yorkshire Cathedral and he cast a spell of magic on the statues in the cathedral. And those statues began to shout and to sing and to tell the stories of the men and women that they depicted. And the magicians of Yorkshire were speechless because while they had talked about magic, and written papers about magic, and debated the history of magic for years, this was the first time in a long time that there had actually been magic in England. And is it that all too often the picture of the church? We sing about the power of God, we talk about the power of God, we listen to sermons and Sunday school lessons about the power of God, but when was the last time we actually saw and felt the power of God? When was the last time the power of God actually changed us? When was the last time the power of God changed me showed up and changed the atmosphere. We have sometimes become experts on God without God actually showing up and doing much of anything. We have become experts on talking about a Lord that we don't even really expect to show up and do anything. We have become experts on a Jesus that in reality we have no intention of really listening to and following and imitating because it's so much easier to be an expert on Jesus than to live in His power and under His power. It's so much easier to talk about the Lordship of Christ than to submit my life to the Lordship of Christ. It is so much easier to talk about the power of God and to theorize about the power of God than to actually live in the power of God. And I want to say to you this morning, I think God wants to bring the magic back. 
I think God wants to bring the magic back of His presence and His power in His work. I think God is trying to stir within His church today a thirst and a yearning for His power and His glory to be present among us. And how do we get there? I believe the key is being thankful to recover what it is to say thank you, Jesus, and really mean it, and to say it from the depths of our souls. To say, thank you, Lord. You see, I believe that Satan has done a great job of robbing the church of a thankful heart and a thankful spirit because in our consumer-based culture, we don't say thank you anymore. We say, I want that, and I need that, and I got to have that. And I'm not going to be satisfied unless I get that. And it's hard to focus on what I don't feel like I've got and I need and I have a right to and I can't live without and be thankful at the same time. Because my focus is always out here and not on what the Lord has already placed in my life. And how do we get that magic back of the power of God when we start getting thankful? Turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I'm beginning a series of messages today on Thanksgiving, more than just a holiday. Rather, Thanksgiving as a means to experience God. And today we're going to look at Thanksgiving as the, the motivation for Thanksgiving, rather being the power of God. That as you and I walk in and experience God's power and what it means to know His power, then that fuels our Thanksgiving of Him. As you turn to 1 Chronicles, and 1 Chronicles is one of those books in the Old Testament that we rarely ever turn to or pay attention to. So you go back in your Bibles away, and you'll go through Genesis and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel, and then you get to 1 and 2 Chronicles. Now, Chronicles is so-called Chronicles because the word literally means the events of the times, and it's the history of the nation of Israel that is not found in 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles excuse me, uh, Samuel. We're not sure who the author of Chronicles is. We believe Ezra may have had a hand in writing these books. The books were written, as best we can tell, between 450 and 425 B.C. And the writer here is concerned with the Jewish people having a true spiritual foundation as God's covenant people. Now, the last chapters of this book, chapters 25 through 29 focus on King David in the concluding time of his life and leading up to his death. And what we're going to look at today, and I really need you to understand the context of the 29th chapter of 1 Chronicles, because the whole passage makes sense if you understand the context of it. David, King David, is literally days away from dying. He is an old man. He has lived a long, prosperous life. God has used him in marvelous ways. He started as this little shepherd boy, and God called him to be the king of Israel. He becomes the king, and he takes Israel from basically one of the smaller, weaker nations of the Middle East to become the most powerful nation in the Middle East at that time. Everybody looked and revered the power and the glory and the wealth of Israel at this time in their history. But God had told David he could not fulfill the final desire of his life. David had built an empire, but David's heart's desire was to conclude his life by building God a dwelling place in Jerusalem known as the temple. 
Since the days of Moses, they had had the tabernacle that they would set up as they would travel from place to place. But now that they were a kingdom and a people settled in the land, David wanted to build the temple. Now, God had said to his people, I'll give you the tabernacle and I'll give you a temple, but I need you to understand something. I do not dwell in buildings made by man's hands. So you can meet me there, but I'm not going to be contained inside those buildings. But David's desire was to build this temple. And God said to him, David, I can't let you do it. You've been a man of warfare, and I've got to have a man of peace that builds this temple. So your son Solomon will build the temple. But David, you can go to your people and ask for the craftsmen to come together who will build this temple. And you can go to the people and ask them to contribute the gold, the silver, the wood, you name it, to build this temple. So that's what David has done. He has gone and he has asked the people. And he stands back in amazement as they begin to bring in all of the materials and the craftsmen come forward and say, I'll use my ability to help build this temple. And so out of that context, David reflects on his life and he reflects on what the people now are doing. And that's what we're going to see in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 beginning with verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. In other words, he stood before the nation of Israel and he blesses the Lord. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand, now notice the usage here of some of the physical aspects of a human being. First he says you are exalted as Head above all, now verse 12, both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Now what David makes use of here in this prayer is a Hebrew way of expressing yourself when you say essentially the same thing or things that are close to each other over and over and over again to make your point and to really emphasize and put an explanation point on your, the point you're trying to make. And so let's look at what he does. And my sermon outline is contained on the back part of your bulletin. Verse 11, he says, yours is the greatness. Now, I'm going to go through each of these words and I'm going to sort of elaborate the idea in the Hebrew language of what's being said. Appreciate if you'd write it down. Yours is the greatness. Part of the root of the Hebrew word here for great means to become great in your sight. In other words, I'm looking at something and it gradually becomes greater and greater and greater as I look upon it. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was a boy, we used to take our vacations in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And we had a tradition that we formed as a family. And the tradition was this, on the last day that we were in the Outer Banks, we would get up before the sun rose and we would go down on the beach and we would watch the sun come up over the ocean on the horizon. And I can remember as a child getting down there and it was just dark as all get out 
And we'd look out there and you could hear the ocean, but you couldn't really see it. And then as you looked out over the horizon, you would begin to see almost a speck of light out there. And then that speck would get a little bit larger and a little bit larger, and then you'd see about a quarter of the sun, and then you'd see about half of the sun, and then the next thing you knew, that great big huge ball of orange was out there, and it was literally illuminating the ocean and the beach, etc. And then about a minute or two later, you would begin to feel the warmth of the sun around you as it literally just flooded across the ocean and across the shoreline there. That sun started out so small and it got bigger and greater and bigger and greater till it just dominated everything. You saw it, you felt it, you were engulfed in it. That's the idea of the Hebrew word here when he says, you are becoming great before me, Lord. When I look at my life, the story of David is saying of my life, Lord, is that you sort of started when I was a boy as a small speck on the horizon, but through experience after experience and year after year and decade after decade, you have gotten greater and greater and greater. And so, Lord, now that I come down to literally the last chapter, the last days of my life, you dominate the horizon of my life. You are so great. Even when I have been through the things in my life that I've been through, Lord, you dominate that greater than anything else in my life. Isn't that a wonderful way to finish up life? That you're not, you're not going to, to your death saying the big thing dominating is all the regrets I've got about the mistakes I've made. The way I'm leaving this earth is not because I'm going out defeated with my head held low. No, I come down to the end of my life and I say, the end of my life is not dominated by mistakes. It's not dominated by failure. The horizon is not filled with all the you know, leftovers and stuff that I've got out there. The horizon of my life is filled with the Lord. That's what dominates my life as I end this, this journey. And that's what David is saying here, verse 11. He says, and by the way, folks, for us, it's not the S-U-N that comes up on the horizon. It's the S-O-N that comes up on the horizon of our lives. Verse 11, he says, yours is the power. The Hebrew word there is the idea of champion. It is the vitality of the successful warrior. Lord, you are the successful warrior. Verse 11, yours is the glory. Now, the word glory there is the idea of ornamentation. In the ancient world, the kings would wear crowns, and the crowns would be filled with jewels, and the jewels and the crown, the ornamentation in the crown, would speak of the power and the glory that they had. For every kingdom that they owned, there was ornamentation on the crown to speak of the kingdoms that they own. If you go to Colonial Williamsburg, for example, and you walk up to the governor's palace, you're going to see the lion and the unicorn, the lion representing... England and the unicorn representing Scotland and it was a powerful way of saying to people in colonial days when they walked up to the face of the governor's palace that the United Kingdom of Scotland and England is ruling Virginia. That's the idea of this ornamentation here and he's saying yours is the glory. All the kingdoms of this world are in your crown. Verse 11, yours is the victory and the idea of the victory it is that it is an enduring victory. Yours, verse 11, is the majesty. Now, the word majesty doesn't just mean royalty there. It carries in the root of the word the idea of excellency. Yours is the excellency. In other words, Lord, you are a cut, 
above all the rest. You're a cut way above all of the rest. Whatever God does, He does with excellence. I want you to think about this small aspect of the excellence of God. There's a very interesting detail about the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It says that when they went into the tomb, they found the grave clothes folded up and laying on the side. He even knew how to leave his gravesite in excellent condition. I love that. He didn't just take them off and throw them on the floor. Someone has observed that when Jesus rose from the dead, he took a broom, now the scriptures don't say this, and swept out the tomb so somebody else could use it after he had walked out. (laughs) But the idea of the excellence of God is, first of all, that there is order in all that God does. Secondly, his excellence means that there is supreme quality in all that he does. Yours is the excellence. All creation is a testimony to that. In Genesis chapter 1, after everything that God created, he stepped back and said, it is good. And the Hebrew word there means it has beauty, it has design to it. God would step back for after everything he created and said, man, that's good. And he wasn't just beating, well, that's good, it looks good, you know, etc. He was stepping back and saying, it's got design to it. I have designed it to be good. I have designed it to fit into the rest of my creation. So there is design in everything that I am creating. It's been left to chemists and physicists uh, and science, etc. to explore literally throughout the remainder of human history, all the design that God built into His creation. But that design is an expression of His majesty. Now, notice how He wants us to experience His power that brings on this thanksgiving. You're the, you've got the power, you've got the glory, you've got the victory, etc. And I notice three key words. First of all, verse 11, He says, You are the head. The word means you're the chief. You are the ruling authority. Colossians 1.18 says he is the head of the body, the church. Now what does it mean for him to be the head? It means that you and I don't have to fear. If he's the head, if he's in charge, if he's got the authority, that you and I don't have to live in fear. I want you to write something down, Okay. This comes from Star Wars. I'll throw a surprise at you, all right? comes from Star Wars. And if someone could bring me the bottle of water over there, I would appreciate it. Yoda said this, okay? But a lot of truth in it. First of all, fear. Thank you. Leads to anger. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And hate leads us to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. 
Anger leads to hate, and hate takes us to the dark side. And when He is the head, I don't need to fear. When He is the head of my life, I don't have to live in fear and walk in fear. When He is the head, I don't have to live in anger. When He is the head, I don't have to hate. And when He is the head, I don't have to live on the dark side. The idea of Him being the head is also that He is the seat of life. He is the one from which life flows. So He is the head. I experience His power when He is the head of my life, the source of life in my life. He is the head. He is the ruler. Secondly, verse 12, it says that He is the hand. Now, the idea of the hand there means firm and vigorous. I want you to think about this. When somebody shakes your hand, we do this without even thinking about it. Jerry, you can walk in this. Come up here. You'll help me illustrate. He didn't know he was going to do this, all right? I'll treat you out to ice cream cone at McDonald's for this, all right? All right, just hold my hand. If When I shake Jerry's hand, without him even thinking about this, all of us do this, we, think, we judge each other in that handshake based on the strength of the grip. If it's a strong grip, that's saying this person's serious and they're connecting to us. If it's a weak grip, then what we're thinking is, well, they're just sort of passing us by. It's, you know, they're not really trying to engage us, or maybe they're sick or something. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> now, when he says here that speaks of his hand, notice what he says in verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you and rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand... It is to make great and to give strength to all. What he's saying, first of all, is the word, the Hebrew word there means strength and vigor. When God's hand connects into our lives, when his hand takes our hand, we initially feel not some weak handshake, but when the hand of God goes into your hand, there is strength, there is life, there is vigor there. You feel the blood pulsating through his hand. Secondly, God uses the hand because he wants to make contact with us. In his hand is strength and power. But notice what he says next about the hand. Not only is it full of vigor, not only has it got strength and power, but he says that the power and the strength that he is placing in us through his hand is to make great and give strength to all. In other words, that hand into our lives is God's way of transferring power from Him into us, strength from Him into us. 
So the motive here for thanksgiving is, Lord, I want to thank you that the power that's in your hand that I am grasping is power from you, empowerment from you, strength from you, Lord. For whatever it is that I got to face in life, for whatever it is that I got to go through, your hand in my hand changes everything. Now the issue is, whose hand are we shaking? Am I shaking my own hand? Am I shaking somebody else's? Am I being shook by somebody else? Or is my hand in the hand of God? Because when my hand is in the hand of God, I know His vigor and His strength. The idea of the hand in the Old Testament also spoke of restoring someone, redeeming someone. Think about David's life, how he had seen God's hand. As a young man, he saw the hand of God take him from being a shepherd boy to becoming the king of Israel. He knew the power of the hand to promote. As he faced wild beasts that would attack him out there when he was trying to take care of those sheep, and as later he would face the wild beast of the king Saul trying to take his life, he knew the protective hand of God and the delivering hand of God. But oh, there came that day when David blew it and messed up and committed adultery with Bathsheba and then sent her husband out to the front lines of battle so he could be killed, so he could marry her and cover the whole thing up. He needed the hand of God then in forgiveness and in restoration. But then it took a step worse because Bathsheba bore a child, the child that David had conceived in his sin And then the child died. And how was David going to deal with the loss of his child? And he knew the hand of God in sustaining him. And in the final years of his life, his son Absalom turned against his father, turned against David and tried to kill him And David's own army killed his son Absalom. And when the news reached David, he began to cry as any dad would. And he said, oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom. And as he mourned and he grieved the death of his son his whole kingdom stood back and said, what's wrong with him? We took him out because he was getting ready to take you out. Betrayal, grief, loss. How do you get beyond that? And the hand of God came into David's life in that lonely, isolated hour and pulled him out of it and put him back on his feet again. And so David now, literally hours away from his death, says, I've known what it is to be sustained in my own fakes and mistakes by the hand of God. There was an old song, gospel song we used to sing when I was coming along, and it said this, He reached out His hand for me. He had to reach way down for me. I was lost and undone without God or His Son, but He reached down His hand for me. Verse 13, Lord, we thank You. I thank You based on Your character. 
I thank you. And the word thank there was a Hebrew expression that meant to extend your hands. So he's literally saying, Lord, I extend my hands to you because I am reaching out for you. I'm reaching out for you, Lord, because I want your hand to grab a hold of my hand as I worship you. Verse 13, yours is the name. The word name there carried the concept of the reputation of God. Yours, Lord, is the reputation. Now please follow what I'm about to say. David is taking worship here. He's taking thanks to a whole new level. Because when he says here, Lord, yours is the name, he's saying, I am thanking you and I am worshiping you because of your character and your reputation. I'm not just worshiping you because of what you have done for me. I'm worshiping you because of who you are. You see, my worship doesn't wait on God doing something for me that I can identify. My worship is never waiting because it is dependent on the character of God. That's what the Bible means by worshiping the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. You see, so many times we say, well, i got to see what God did for me, and then I'm going to say thank you. Lord, I want to, let me look at what you did for me, and then I'll say thank you. Or I can't see what God did, so I'm not going to say thank you. But this act of worship is not saying i got to identify something specific that God did for me today. This says, Lord, you are holy and I thank you for your holiness. You are pure, divine, absolute love and I praise you for your love. You are power and you are majesty and I worship you for your power and your majesty. Jesus, I don't need for you to show up this day in November and do something for me because you did everything you could have done 2,000 years ago on the cross. My praise doesn't have to wait for today. My praise started at Calvary 2,000 years ago. And my praise to you will last for thousands of years going forward, not because of what you do for me, but because of what you did on the cross 2,000 years ago and because you rose again from the dead. Glory to God. Oh, I better get through this sermon. I better start dancing on this platform. (laughs) Worshiping Him for what He has already done. Now, how do we get at this? Let me give you a little suggestion here, okay? Using what I'm going to call breath prayers. And this is what a breath prayer is. A breath prayer is you take a deep breath and you say, Lord, I want to thank you. And then fill it in. doesn't take but a minute to pray. You can pray it anywhere. Lord, I want to thank you this morning that this is the day that you have made and I rejoice and I'm going to be glad in it. Lord, I want to thank you today that regardless of what happened today, there was a day 2,000 years ago that you marked it all down 
that this day means that I am loved by you for eternity because of what you did on that day. I am saved today because of what you did on that day. I am redeemed today because of what you did on that day. I got a hope today because of what you did on that day. And this day means that I'm looking forward to another day, and that's the day you're coming again. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I want to take a deep breath and just say thank you that the Lord is my shepherd. I need not want. And even if I have to go through the valley of the shadow of death today, I'm not going through that valley alone. Because you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A breath prayer. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And in silence before God, I want you right now, if you would, to just utter a breath prayer to the Lord. Lord, I thank you. And then you fill in the blank. Lord, I thank you. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for blood that stained that cross and cleansed us and cleanses us and sets us free. Oh God, thank you that that tomb in Jerusalem is empty this morning and has been for over 2,000 years. And thank you that because that tomb is empty, our lives are filled with you. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to live in fear we live in healness, healing, and wholeness. Thank you. And Lord, we want to ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that every day you would just sort of nudge us to breathe a prayer and say thank you, Lord. Those holy nudges along the way. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you've never been able to say to Jesus, thank you, Jesus, for saving me, for delivering me from my sin, from my guilt, from my shame, then in a moment as we sing, I want to invite you to walk the aisle of this church Place your hand in mine by doing that same, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus today. And know what it is to be able to say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. If God's calling you into the ministry, I want to invite you to come and surrender to that call, regardless of what age you are, regardless of what... Maybe He's telling you specifically how He wants to use you. Maybe it's still up in the air, but you're willing to say yes, Jesus. I invite you to come. If you need to come and pray, the altar is open.
And if the Lord is speaking to you and saying, I want you to be part of a church family here, I invite you to come. Lord Jesus, thank you for being here. And thank you for being here and being ready to do a work in our lives. In your name. Let's stand together. Come if you will.